Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this programme, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash! Exclusive! Here's front page news! You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline. Welcome to another episode of Byline, United Ireland's companion podcast, where we talk to great journalists about their lives, their work, and the stories that matter to them. On this episode, I am very thrilled to uh, bring Susan McKay to Byline. Susan is one of the most astute, stimulating, insightful, and empathic journalists working in Ireland today. From Derry, she was one of the founding members of the Belfast Rape Crisis Centre before getting into journalism full time. She was the social affairs correspondent, Northern Ireland editor, of the Sunday Tribune. She's won multiple awards. She was also the CEO of the National Women's Council at one stage. She's made documentaries. She's written some brilliant books, including one we're going to be talking about today, Northern Protestants on Shifting Ground, which is a sequel of sorts uh, to one she published 20 years ago, Northern Protestants and Unsettled People. She writes and has written for The New York Times, The New Yorker, for which she wrote a really moving and excellent piece on the life and legacy of her friend, Lyra McKee. She's written and writes for The Guardian, The Irish Times and loads more. She's a journalist who, um, amongst her peers, commands huge respect and admiration, occupying that sometimes intimidating intellectual wry, and also very funny magic sphere that women from Derry uh, somehow do I don't know how they do it but maybe we will find out in this interview so it's a pleasure Susan um to talk to you on byline thank you very much Una it's lovely to be here we're speaking to you around the publication of this book which is uh, very understandably getting a lot of attention it's a fantastic immersive knowledgeable interesting diverse range of voices um, and perspectives we're also talking um the week after yet another um, melodrama unfolded within the DUP with Edwin Poots resigning and this constant impression I guess um, that a lot of people have about unionist politics fragmenting and collapsing in on itself and uh, the, the vacuums that that creates too but on this podcast we always start by asking um, the person being interviewed which is you uh, where you grew up and how did and when did the craft of journalism come calling? Um, well, I was born in Derry at the very end of the 1950s um, in a largely, almost completely Protestant community in a little sort of place about a couple of miles from the city of Derry, which at that at that time it was kind of like countryside, but it has since become um, suburbs. Um, it's a place uh, which was very rural, was becoming more urban. And um, my neither of my parents were actually from there. My mum was from a working class housing estate in Dungannon. My dad was from a very um, small Presbyterian village on the North Coast. And um, he was Presbyterian, she was Church of Ireland. Neither of them, both of them were teachers, but neither of them had really um, settled into being middle class at that point, and in fact didn't do so really until 
probably many decades later on. So we were in this strange position. We were living in this house that was kind of built in the middle of a field as a schoolhouse beside this new school. And uh, they didn't have any friends in the area. Um, they didn't really know where they fitted in uh, in the local community. So we, we grew up in a strangely sort of a detached way. And it was heightened by the fact that my mum never, you know, the, the, the patriarchal assumption is that a wife will take on the religion of her husband. But my mum never liked Presbyterianism. So um, she we kind of were half heartedly brought to church, but it never really stuck and it, they were never really very committed to it. So it was quite a strange childhood now when I look back on it. Um, we also, like my parents would have taken us off on holidays to Donegal, which was unusual, you know, in the fact that in, in my primary school, almost everybody else went to Port Rush or Port Stewart, you know, the more northern Protestant holiday destinations. So I suppose we were that bit uh, out on our own. And I think that's probably a kind of background that many journalists come from. I think for many journalists, it is a kind of a quest to find your own feet, you know, mm. where, they, where they stand on the ground. Anyway, I was set at the age of 11, um, which roughly coincided with the beginning of the, the troubles. Um, I was sent to Londonderry High School for young ladies, which was an entirely girls school on the far side of the city. And, you know, so we were traveling backwards and forwards across Derry during the Troubles. And, you know, you got into that thing that, that people will have seen on Derry Girls, you know, the kind of um, annoyance that the bus was held up on Craigavon Bridge. So you didn't get to meet so-and-so uh, on, you know, and go to such and such. And, you know, you had this kind of just sort of very self-centered view of disruption in one way but in another way it was very very dismaying and, and frightening really what was going on um we uh, were a bit detached from it in the sense that we weren't uh, we weren't part of a particular community um and i've often felt you know people from the um nationalist uh, majority community in Derry have a much have one of the strongest senses of community that I've ever experienced in anybody and I'm from Derry and I don't have that at all you know um, but as I became a teenager I became very drawn towards you know Irish culture Irish literary culture Irish music culture in particular my friend and I would go to um uh, Christy Moore concerts and horse lips in the Borderlands Ballroom and uh, Planksty and Letterkenny and you know we would go we would we would be going to these things which weren't really within our cultural ambit at all but were very mind opening I think and my dad would have given uh, me um, Seamus Heaney books as they came out and I think that he was drawn to Seamus Heaney because he saw in him somebody who used the old country, northern, north Derry words that my dad used. And um, so he saw a solidarity with him in that. So there's that whole thing of language and music and literature taking me in a direction which was contrary to the political um, makeup of um, my community background. Both of my parents came from fairly staunch Protestant um, unionist backgrounds and neither of them was that way inclined mm. so well you had, a, you had a kind of circuitous route going into journalism what kind of things were you doing before before you started becoming a journalist full-time 
Well, I left, I left Derry in 1975. I got a scholarship to Trinity in Dublin and I was delighted to leave the North and thought that I would never go back there. I just thought it was, a, it was just horrendous. I couldn't understand it. I couldn't bear it. And I um, left and went to Trinity. But by 1981, um, I found actually being in the Republic, it sort of, it opened my eyes to the fact that it isn't very easy to be a Northerner in the Republic. Um, during the Troubles, there was a kind of thing that people were very wary of you. They kept out of your way. Um, and we didn't even know how to talk among ourselves about the North. I mean, looking back, I had a friend whose um, entire, a large part of his family and his neighbours had been killed in a, in a loyalist atrocity. Um, the pub that his parents ran was, was bombed by the UVF and his mum, his younger sister and other members of his close circle of, of family and friends were killed. But even though we would like be out carousing together on a regular basis, we never talked about that. And looking back, I realised that, you know, he was always very, very generous with money. And I realise now that probably at a certain stage he, he had money that he had got as part of, you know, compensation for that atrocity, but we didn't talk about it. And that, that strikes me looking back as strange. Um, but anyway, yeah, after that, I came back up to Belfast in 1981 into the middle of the desolation of the post-hunger strike period. And Belfast was far, far darker and fiercer than Derry had ever been. And uh, I realized that I, I was, you know, I was politically minded. I wanted to make a difference, make a change to the place, but I couldn't fit in with any of the political parties. I definitely wasn't a unionist. I definitely wasn't a Republican. Um, so I ended up anyway getting involved in feminist politics. I had already trained to be a volunteer with the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre when I uh, lived in Dublin and getting involved in feminism had begun to enable me to make sense of the world, I must say. Um, so I got involved in the Rape Crisis Centre, became quite burned out with that after a number of years. Um, but that was very interesting in the sense that it was, we were introducing a new narrative to Northern Ireland politics because the talk was all of the violence, meaning the political violence, meaning the British Army, the Loyalist paramilitaries, the IRA, the INLA, you know, these factions um, that were fighting a war. But you know, what we were finding through our work in the Rape Crisis Centre was that there was an absolutely phenomenal level of domestic violence and rape going on, which wasn't talked about in the public sphere at all. So we started talking about it in the public sphere and it was really uh, shocking to people and uh, not entirely an acceptable narrative. Um, there used to be terrible rows uh, in the feminist movement about people, about whether we should be emphasising violence against women because it was also emerging that most violence against women was happening within uh, people's own families and communities. And uh, that looked to some people, probably in particular, some Republican elements that like treachery, you know, um, but, you know, there were problems with, with loyalists as well about, about all of that. Anyway, it gave me a lesson in, you know, the way that certain stories are told and certain stories aren't told and how there is a resistance to certain stories being told, particularly if they're about women. Mm, I guess that kind of understanding about, you know, lifting 
lifting up the rug on on what's mm-hmm. hidden beneath um is very much a, a journalistic instinct mm-hmm. as well if not so that, a brought foundational on, yeah. one yeah so i brought all of that background to my journalism i went off and worked in a, a young unemployed center in the west of ireland for about a year then i became a community border a community worker in a border area of county fermanagh after that for a year and then um um I had kind of a desire to be a writer at that stage. And it was my friend, uh, Trish Hegarty, who she was going about to do a journalism course at Dublin City University. And she suggested that I do it as well. So I did. I did it the year after she did it. And I think I did it in 1988, 89. And um, I then started working in the Irish press just as a news journalist. And I learned how to be a reporter at that stage and how to write structured stories and so on was fantastic place to work and tell me about the that the era of the irish press like what was that newsroom like kind of culturally uh the newsroom i mean it was it was um it was a really gorgeous place you know the newsroom actually overlooked the river uh it was on do you know overlooked um the liffey it was mm. on the keys and we were just up above um um What's the name of the pub along there? Which one? <laughs> it's gone out of my head. You know, the one that was known as Downstairs Mulligans. Mulligans. Um, it was right at the, the, the newsroom was just a couple of doors up from Mulligan's pub and you know everybody just regarded Mulligan's pub as downstairs you know so if a call a call might come in for the news editor and uh, you would say well I think he's downstairs at the moment I'll get him to call you back and you'd know rightly that he was down in Mulligan's having a few pints but um, so it was a very it was a it was a great place to work and there were fantastic people there working there but it was very traditional as well you know there was you had to fight sometimes over the kind of headlines that were put on stories. And, you know, I had friends who worked in the subs desk there and they were always complaining about the propensity of certain of the sub editors to want to have pictures of women with cleavage and so on. And, you know, where they were inappropriate and not in any way relevant to the story and that kind of thing. But um, I I liked working in the Irish press and... Um, what kind of stories were you working on? Was general reporting be sure? General, general reporting and, you know, the Irish press was a tabloid and so you didn't get to write anything at any great length, but it was a fantastic discipline to learn how to write short things because like any journalist quickly learns that even if you work in a paper where they occasionally allow you to write 2000 words, it's quite frequently the case you write 2000 words and then suddenly something else will happen and your story will first of all get cut to a thousand words and then get cut to 500 words, you know, so you have to be versatile in that regard. But um, at one stage, um, <clears throat> the late Jerry O'Hare was the news editor there. And uh, he was like a character and he knew me from the North and he kind of liked me and liked the fact that I was a kind of a, troublesome northerner I suppose and uh, he would send me out on things like um, to cover the investiture of a priest you know and I would I would come back and write it up like a colour story and he would laugh his head off and put it on what was known as the spike which is the uh, was physically a, a spike that stories that were not going to be used were put on you know and then he would use the Catholic Church's press release to write up the story as it was meant to be written up <laughs> 
tongue-in-cheek reverence. But um, yeah, it was a good experience working there. And then in 1992, um, I applied for and got a job with the Sunday Tribune, which was then edited by the legendary Vincent Brown, to whom I'm very grateful for the fact that he really gave me a start in a, in a different sort of journalism. Mm. Vincent um, is at the, the genesis of an awful lot of people's yeah. kind of turning points in their careers. How did you find what the, the paper was under his stewardship and, and, and how did his kind of mentorship inform your own career path? Um, well, Vincent was uh, one of the people that I've met in my life who most truly believes in journalism. You know, he he really was passionate about what he had in the Sunday Tribune. And um, he was uh, quite a wild and difficult person, I would imagine, to have as an editor if you were trying to like be like the late Jerry Barry was, his deputy. And sometimes Vincent would sort of just suddenly on a Saturday afternoon decide that he was completely going to change what the front page lead was. And Jerry Barry would disappear into the office and the door would be closed and there'd be a lot of shouting and then Jerry Barry would emerge and instruct the subs that they were to change the front page or whatever you know but he Vincent allowed people to find their feet you know he, he allowed you to do stories that were just that bit beyond what you'd ever done before and <clears throat> so therefore you you know, probably wrote some things that were a bit wild or a bit uh, not not uh, very polished, but you learned your trade and it, the Tribune was absolutely fantastic in that way. He was also very interested in the North and he wrote about, he allowed us to write about the North in a way that it wasn't being written about anywhere else, you know, like in a, in a way that kind of captured in some ways the um, the horror of the the North in a way that it wasn't being captured in, in other, not, not all other papers, but certainly in some. And he allowed me to um, bring other elements into the Northern coverage. You know, he allowed me to write about um, women's stories in the North. And uh, unfortunately he wasn't the editor for very long after I went there, um, but he was definitely by far the most exciting um, newspaper editor that I ever worked for. Um, it was sometimes pretty hair raising and there used to be these editorial meetings where, which were just absolutely um, nothing could be more frightening than sitting there around this big table while Vincent sat at the head of the table and turned the pages of that Sunday's paper on a Tuesday morning and he'd stop at a page that you knew your story was on and your heart would be in your mouth. Uh, hoping that you wouldn't be one of those of whom he would say, who wrote this shite? <laughs> Why are we covering this? What is this doing in the paper? You know, um, so it was pretty scary, but it was it was a it was a brilliant paper in its time. The Well, you're talking there about like the the breadth of coverage that he desired um, in the Tribune at the time <laughs> with regards to the, the North. Eva Grace Moore was on the podcast a while mm. ago and she was talking about how some of those really ignorant um, othering attitudes still exist in, in Irish print media. Um, you know, uh, a fair whack of them in, in, in part of the kind of political journalism arena. 
was that an experience that that you had you know that kind of offensive basically attitude towards journalists who are from the north but working in the republic um i think that in general there's a there's a kind of a wariness about northerners um in the republic um it was more pronounced <coughs> during the conflict because i think that there was a sort of a sense that the north had you know the plague winds about it and that uh, it was best kept away up there and uh, that if you know if you if you talked about it too much or highlighted it too much or let too many different voices in <clears throat> excuse me that it um it might you know the winds might blow south and disrupt and plague and and cause problems here so um yeah, I think there, there's there is a lot of there's a lot of that, and also I think Northerners are perceived in the Republic to be quite abrasive, and quite loud and quite aggressive in some ways, and that isn't liked. And I've I've often found myself sort of being on best behaviour or feeling as if I'm being on best behaviour, and then suddenly somebody says, "Stop being so aggressive," and you realise that you haven't toned yourself down quite enough, you know. <laughs> But um, yeah, in the media, the struggle was always to get people to realise that Northern stories were Irish stories, you know, that uh, I remember an editor in, in very recent years um, when I was arguing for more, a, a bigger word count for a story, which I thought was a very strong story. And he got really impatient and said, um, um, look, it's a Wednesday and it's a Northern story you know, as if I was supposed to understand from that, that of course, therefore, that meant that it couldn't have a substantial space. Um, so I think that there's a there's a weird attitude in the Republic to, to covering Northern stories. You know, they do, there is still a sense of it as a set place apart. You know, mm. it's, it's, not, it's not just up the road. Um, it isn't a region in the same way that the South or the West or the Northwest in the Republic are regions. It's, it's regarded as something that you tiptoe into and tiptoe out again uh, to a certain extent. I think after the Good Friday Agreement, a lot of uh, people in the Republic just kind of thought, oh God, thank that, thankfully that's over and we can just forget about them, them again. But on the other hand, in, you know, you mentioned that my book, uh, Northern Protestants on Shifting Ground, has just come out. And mm. the first week that that book came out, it went straight to number two in Hodges Figgis's bestsellers list. And it has stayed there. It's selling incredibly well in the Republic, which is a real surprise to me. And I think a very, I think it's a very, um, I mean, obviously, I would think it's good because it's my book and I want it to sell. But I also think it's really a positive sign that people in the Republic are perhaps more interested in the North than than has been assumed. Yeah, and you can even yeah, and you can see that change as well, not just happen in the Republic, but also in English media. You know that, mm -hmm. that you can definitely see, you know, uh, an increased smattering, um, particularly in the more well, the only uh, left wing uh, left ish mm -hmm. paper in the Guardian. You're you're seeing this increase of of stories now maybe they're also to fit another narrative about the damage that brexit has caused uh or mm -hmm. the potential um 
the potential difficulties that that or not potential, very obvious difficulties that opens up. But mm-hmm. you, I want to talk about the book um, because I just found I was absolutely bad into it. And one of the things that it really opens up, I suppose, um, for the reader and for you know the general you know this this form of journalism which is very rooted in um i think Cathy Sheridan used to say like in order to write features you have to see the whites of people's eyes you know it, it's quite face to face and the diversity of voices that um is in the book just don't seem to be as present in the um general media narratives around unionist politics which are mostly focused on DUP politicians Mm. shouting on the radio about something and then there's almost like a a, sometimes I feel that there's almost a a setup Mm. basically like get get the person on with the most extreme view um on the north and then we'll just go roll our eyes you know that that Mm. kind of seems to be a kind of dynamic um that occurs one of the things um, that you quote, I think you qu- you're kind of re-quoting from the previous book, is mm-hmm. this thing that Dermot Seymour says, where he says being Protestant is like having no head in the sense you're not allowed to think without becoming a threat or a Lundy. Lundy looms large in this book, but to the uninitiated, what or who is a Lundy? <laughs> well, um, Lundy, the original Lundy, um, was a man called Robert Lundy, who was the governor of the city of Derry um, in 1689 when the Catholic Jacobite forces put the city under siege. And he uh, believed that the city couldn't withstand a siege. So he wanted them to negotiate a surrender, basically. But the uh, 12 young apprentice boys then who were staunch Protestants decided that that was not going to happen. So they shut the gates of the city and a siege did follow and Lundy. And it did cause immense hardship and death. But in the end, they didn't surrender. And the Jacobite forces uh, eventually um, abandoned um, their assault on the city. But um, it has become, Lundy then had to flee the city. He supposedly climbed over the walls and down through a pear tree and um, slunk off back to England. Um, But ever since then, anybody who dissents within unionism is called a Lundy. And as Dermot says, you know, it could be something really simple, like just having a thought, you know, or writing a poem or painting a painting, you know, something which involves uh, looking at things from a different direction. But anyway, the the, um, the book has as its cover the effigy of Lundy, which is actually burned in Derry every December. And, you know, it's it's got a it's got a placard around its neck that says Lundy the traitor. But in my book, I've put my name and the um, some blurb about the book in the placard where it used to say <laughs> Lundy the traitor which makes me feel great uh, <laughs> but so a lot of people have sort of adopted the term Lundy in a sort of positive way now because you know there has been a sort of a, a, a real change in Northern Irish society in the last 21 years since the Good Friday Agreement. There are far, far more people now who are quite happy to say that they don't see their religion as being the main signifier of their identity. Lots and lots of young people don't even know what religion their friends are, although unfortunately uh, integrated education only applies to um, a very small 7% of, of, of children at this point. But lots of younger people now 
are much more involved in, um, you know, feminism or uh, politics to do with gender issues like the same-sex marriage uh, campaign, um, abortion rights, um, global uh, climate justice, you know, people are tuned into a whole sort of a source of, of digital information, uh, which as um, the playwright Stacey Gregg, who I interviewed, said, you know, that their imaginations are informed by a range of sources that their parents couldn't or grandparents could never have imagined. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole generation of, of people coming up now who are just, you know, they like the positives of Northern Ireland. It's a very friendly place. It's a very beautiful place in many ways. Uh, it's got its own character, its own sense of humour, and people love that about it. And um, they're not willing to just go, you know, be the Lundy who climbs over the walls and go away. goes away. They want to stay there and they're kind of saying, well, no, we don't think that your politics is serving us. And they look at the Republic as well and they see that the um, repeal of the eighth campaign got rid of a of a piece of the constitution that was deeply offensive to women. Uh, they look at the um, getting the, the introduction of same-sex marriage legislation. Um, they look at the use of citizens' assemblies and they think, well, you know, we could do that here. So there's a sort of a sense that politics isn't the be all and end all. Mm -hmm. You can actually bring about change through social movement. And, you know, when you look back, actually the whole civil rights movement that started the transformation of Northern Ireland was a housing rights movement. It was uh, primarily about the absolute um, absence of any kind of justice in terms of uh, access to housing in, in Derry for Catholics. Yeah. And like one of the things that I find, and it's so interesting how, how social movements, even though they're framed as traditionally like maybe like divisive yet in this context are obviously organized around lines of, of unity and coalition rather than you know, traditional uh, the other identity politics that has that has informed so much politics in the north but one of the things that I found really interesting about your book is almost universally uh, across all of the uh, the majority of, of people mm. that you talk to, be they, you know, really staunch traditionalists or, you know, very progressive, you know, mm. um, older or younger people, is that there seems to be this acknowledgement that across the board, unionists and unionism have been left let down by their politicians. Do you think, like, that's obviously a very dominant um, a perspective, no matter what the what the background is. And then we kind of were, you know, as I was saying at the top, like what's currently going on with the DUP kind of really speaks to that chaos. And, you know, when Dermot Seymour talks about not having a head, mm. there's there's a different kind of headlessness uh, go, going on, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that, you know, that the, the it does go back to partition and the way that Ireland was um, segregated into two states, which were primarily identified by ethnic identity, you know. So the North was a Protestant state and um, the state began being sort of engineered into trying to ensure that there would constantly be a Protestant majority and that therefore unionist rule would continue for as long as it wanted and, and into eternity. 
Um, but it didn't turn out that way, you know, between demographics and the civil rights movement and the, the IRA and the troubles and all of that. And then the Good Friday Agreement. There is now a requirement for there to be a different sort of politics, but certainly the DUP has not accepted that. And really an awful lot of the trouble that's going on at the moment is about that. It's about the fact that there are a lot of people within certainly DUP voters and also some others uh, like the members of the TUV, the traditional unionist voice, which is a kind of a pre-Paisley chuckle brothers type party. Um, it, it, uh, it, it reckons that the whole Good Friday Agreement was a complete sellout. Um, but anyway, the D, a lot of people in the DUP never, the DUP when the Good Friday Agreement was signed was against it and said that it was going to smash it, that it was a partnership with the men of blood, that it was um, a betrayal of the Protestant people and it has never warmed to it. Um, there's always been that kind of uh, wariness of the notion that you know, if you if you trust them, they're going to let you down, you know, and I think, unfortunately, when it comes to the present moment, when demographics is going against unionism, the DUP is really playing on that sectarian fear, you know, the fear of the other, the fear that the other will overtake you, the fear that they're not to be trusted. Um, and I think that the whole sort of Irish language debacle that is going on at the moment is about that. You know, it's about, you know, in the 1990s, we had Drum Cree and we had, you know, we'll, we'll not be told where we're going to walk. We'll walk the Queen's Highway if we want to, you know, which is what they were in Georgia was saying. And they rejected the idea that residents, nationalist groups should say otherwise. Likewise, now, I think the reason why unionism is making such a, an apparently bizarre stand against a very innocuous piece of Irish language legislation is because it's the same thing, you know, oh, forgive them this before you know it, they'll want everything, you know, and we're not going to be told what we're going to give. Um, we'll give it whenever we want to. We'll not give it because you say so, you know, uh, puts you know, the outgoing leader of the DUP as we speak. Um, said, you know, yes, we'll implement the Irish Language Act, but, you know, we're not going to say when. It might not mm. be in the term, you know. And to nationalists, and I don't just mean Sinn Féin, I mean the wider nationalist community and indeed to, to many people from the Protestant community, they need to see, the reason why it's, it's an important issue for them is because they see it as being symbolic of respect and they see it as being symbolic of, you know, does unionism actually wish to share power? Is it actually willing to respect the other and the, the rights and equality of, of the other? And I fear that unionism is, is, is not, you know, mm. it's extremely, if you don't understand that in that way, I don't know what other way there is to understand it because why should it matter, you know? If people want, and, and the, the ridiculous thing is that the biggest growth area uh, for speakers of the Irish language is Protestant East Belfast. You know, uh, Linda Irvine has this amazing project going there, which is, you know, the, most of the people who get involved in it are working class Protestant people. It's um, giving people confidence that they're capable of learning, maybe people who left school early, um, who 
lacked any kind of a sense of their ability to achieve something different and they're learning Irish and they're sending their children to an Irish language primary school and there's an East Belfast GAA club now and people are are loving that kind of injection of energy into their culture and you know Linda Irvine is does talks in which she talks about how you know the Irish language was always a shared language and you know our place names all over Northern Ireland are are full of Irish uh, including some very Protestant very um, staunch Protestant areas you know mm. so the DUP is going against that and so is the UUP unfortunately you know we've got a new uh, Doug Beattie the new um, leader of the Ulster Unionist Party is willing to be progressive on things like gay rights and abortion rights I think but he too is against the Irish Language Act and you have to feel that that is out of that kind of the fear of challenging a deep-rooted sort of sectarianism which is really sad yeah, See? and as Linda Irvine makes the point as well that, you know, that Northern Protestants are actually historically steeped in the language. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, she kind of says Protestants who reject it don't know their history. You know, I think that's a it's a mm. it's a different, as you're saying, like turning, turning. Um, if it's not about the history, then what if it's if it's about some kind of thing that's been imposed when it hasn't, mm. then what is it about? You know, as you say, um, but one of the quotes that really struck with me or, or perspectives was Julianne Cor Johnson, who mm-hmm. described poverty as a greater threat to the union than republicanism. That's mm-hmm. There seems to be a uh, generalization, I guess, in the Republic that the working class Catholics got educated and the working class Protestants didn't. Now, that's obviously extraordinarily simplistic, but poverty and the issues that emerge from that, be that um violence stoked by boredom or, or lack of opportunity uh or for you know because because there's not necessarily other activities going on or amenities that are less harmful i mean there does seem to be a perspective now maybe it's a little tropey in the republic that that kind of marginalization is a much bigger and more uh, more societal thing that actually could be better or 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 more easily approached than the lines of sectarianism or the green and orange politics cycle? Um, I think there's much better community cohesion in the nationalist community in the north. There's and I, I think it's sort of quite similar to what you see sometimes with um, migrant communities in in big cities, say that there's a sense that they've got to stick together and, and kind of make a space. You know, I mean, Northern Ireland was made for unionism. And uh, so Catholics have had to be smart about manoeuvring into, into position. And um, a lot of, uh, there is still a sort of lingering of that old sense of entitlement, but it doesn't work for working class Protestants anymore because all the big industries that they are in Georgia used to be able to get you into are gone. You know, so there's there's just as much need for um, a young Protestant to, you know, work really hard for their education, uh, have a plan in mind, you know, do do you know, be supported and all of, all of that as there is for any young Catholic. But there somehow isn't there isn't that cohesion within that community. And I've gone to many many meetings in community centres all over Northern Ireland that have been organised, say, by community groups or whatever over over issues or 
or something that's coming up that needs to be discussed. And you just very often you'd find there's a couple of very vigorous community groups there. Um, there's politicians from the SDLP, there's politicians from Sinn Féin, and there are pro quite probably um, members of the Catholic Church there who are involved in, in any kind of community activity. But you don't, first of all, the, the unionist representatives will have been invited, but don't come. Um, and then if you're talking about unionist communities, they don't tend to have those kind of meetings. It's beginning to change. I mean, for example, in Derry, there's a, an organisation called the London Derry Bands Forum, and they've started having, you know, big communal discussions about um, important political and social issues. And it's working, you know, it really is, is helping to, to bring about a transformation, but it's not a tradition. The tradition within um, unionism was you'd be looked after if you knew your place and stayed in it. You know, and in my first book, I write about my um, mother's father, my grandfather, who was a very, very classic working class Protestant man. You know, he was a member of the Orange Order. He was a member of the Order of the Black. Um, he worked in a linen mill. He what's never... The, what's the Order of the Black? Sorry. Uh, it's a, the Black Preceptory. It's another Loyal Orders organization. Um, it would take too long to explain <laughs> what it is, but it's another marching loyal order organization like the Orange Order, um, biblically based, sash wearing, um, based on a, on a notion of, of biblical morality and rectitude and masculinity. But, um, you know, he, he never questioned his place as a working class man. He, I don't think he was in a trade union. He might have been, but he certainly wouldn't have been a militant trade unionist. He was also in the Masonic order. And all of these are places where, you know, you had all levels of Protestant society. So you had the landlord, you had the factory owner, you had the headmaster of the local school, and you had your working class people, men. And, you know, it, it kept people, kept people in their stratum of society but they did consider themselves to be a cut above the Catholics. You know, they considered that they had advantages that Catholics didn't have. And that has disadvantaged um, Protestant working class people, I think. And I think a lot of people have seen through that um, kind of way of ethnically corralling people now. And you're seeing lots of people, <clears throat> you know, the Orange Order isn't nearly as strong as it used to be even as it was in the 1990s. No, mm -hmm. it, 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 um, it's fading away. There's very, in the book I talked to a few younger uh, members of the Orange Order, but they acknowledge that um, it is an older men's organization now. You're not seeing younger people getting involved in it. They don't see it as being relevant to them. What's been the most, um, the story that, that you've struggled with the most or that was most difficult for you over the past few years to work on? Um, well, I suppose I've written a lot about the North, but I've also written a lot about, I've always written about feminist issues. And um, I don't know about the last few years, but one of the most important stories that I was ever involved in was the Sophia McColgan story, uh, which was um, 1998, my first book. Um, Sophia was a young woman who had brought her father to court 
after decades of being abused by him and siblings being abused by him. And he ended up being convicted and sent to prison for 238 years, of which I think he served about seven or eight. But um, the point is, from a journalistic point of view, the way that I wrote that book was quite feminist because I worked very closely with Sophia and um, she determined uh, the tone of the book and the lessons that people were going to be, be given from the book. And just to give a very simple example, for example, the publisher wanted to have a photograph on the book of, you know, a child sort of huddled up in despair, obviously a victim of some sort of cruelty. And she said, no, she wanted a picture of her smiling as she emerged from the four courts having had her father convicted. So that was a real uh, lesson for me in, you know, giving, giving people agency and um, allowing someone to speak about things that had been unspeakable. In recent years, I returned to that by uh, when I was writing about the, um, what was known as the Belfast rape trial, the rugby rape trial. And that was a, a tricky story to tell because, um, in that case, uh, a young woman uh, alleged that four uh, young men uh, had uh, subjected her to um, an assault which involved a couple of them raping her. And um, it was alleged that others <clears throat> had assisted them by covering up for them and so on. And they were all acquitted. But among the... Um, um, many, many people were absolutely horrified and furious about the sort of attitudes to women that were revealed by these, you know, the, the evidence given about these young guys. You know, they'd had these WhatsApp groups in which they referred to women as sluts and slags. And, you know, that's just a very mild taste of it. But so there was afterwards, there was a whole sort of surge of me too feeling in the north and I believe her and so on but as journalists we were kind of caught because we had to stick with the law you know which said you know these guys were acquitted um, but at the same time you know you could see what was going on was about other things it was about a much deeper thing it was about a rape culture so that was a very very challenging um, story to write and I was quite frustrated because the, the paper that I was um, writing for in Ireland had got a, uh, a man <laughs> who they had decided was a better person to write about it than me. And so I had to sort of find my own outlet for it. And I ended up doing a long read for The Guardian about it, which I was really, really happy to have the opportunity to do. Because if you're starting, if you're writing a story which is about the deeper culture that underlies violence against women, you really do need a bit of space. And yeah. the, the Guardian actually gave me that space and enabled me to write the story in a way that, that addressed that sort of disquiet and unease that there was that pervaded society and, you know, still flares up, you know, when something comes up like one of those guys, you know, getting a promotion in whatever rugby club he's now with or whatever, there is a flaring up of, of that sort of sense of um, horror and grievance that, that that women have about what happened at that time. Mm. You know, it's that, it's that thing between, you know, feminists might say, why are the press not? Like feminists used to put stuff up on social media about, you know, 
At first, the press was the media were sort of highlighting the woman's evidence. And now they're talking all the time about these guys. And you want to say, well, yeah, that's because we were highlighting the woman's evidence when she was giving her evidence. And now the guys are giving their evidence. So we're highlighting that. But, you know, there is a, there is a lot of sort of blaming of the media for things that are not really the media's fault. Mm. But I think there is there is always a struggle to get women's voices into things. And that's why I've got lots of brilliant women in this book. It's absolutely packed with them. You know, women, women like Claire Sugden, who was uh, at the age of 34, was a really good justice minister who highlighted the need for domestic violence legislation as one of her key issues. Um, Karen Sathuraman, who's a Baptist minister who the Irish Baptist Church wouldn't allow to have a ministry. So she now just runs her own Baptist ministry as a kind of a gospel of the streets. Uh, Linda Irvine, who we've talked about. Um, Tony Ogle, who's a young woman whose father was murdered by people who claimed that they were loyalists. And she's campaigning for justice for him and, you know, subverting language by saying, if uh, fighting for justice for my dad makes me a tout, then I'm a tout, you know, which is such a brave thing to say mm. in Northern Ireland, where being a tout used to be regarded as the absolute, you know, end of your life. Um, and there's a, you know, a couple of people who had to speak to me um, without using their full names or addresses, a woman called Amy, who was subjected to abuse online which really affected her life and she just took it head on and dealt with it and, and um, would have none of it and is determined to stay living in the working class community that she's always lived in. Um, Jenny, a friend of mine whose son was preyed upon by loyalist paramilitaries and ended up very very seriously mentally ill over the head of it and she had to plead with the local paramilitaries to, to leave them alone and stop and that she would help to pay them back and she gives a huge insight into the way that the paramilitary loyalist organizations actually operate in the communities which they say they represent and it just makes me really angry when I see them constantly being given a platform on the media because that's what they actually now represent they're they are drug dealers, they are money launderers, they are money lenders, you know, they, they intimidate and they entrap and, and uh, radicalise young people. Um, and then Eileen Weir, great, great, great community worker in West Belfast, and there are many people like Eileen, um, she, well, she's kind of unique, but there's other women who are doing similar work all over the North and have been keeping communities together for decades upon decades, including in the worst part of the troubles, but who don't get asked to speak and mm. who are, you know, generally given given space. So there's just so much really progressive stuff that's going on. Yeah, and well, I think it's just why it's such well, a, it's a hopeful, hopeful read. read. Mm. Um, um, sorry, I'm just going to feedback on my voice there. Oh yeah, it's gone now. Perfect. Um, but listen, before you go. One of the things that I love about your reporting, and, and you mentioned it there with regards to um, that Ulster would be rape trial, is, is the context. You know, mm -hmm. like the 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 context is so important to to everything, but particularly um, in in a place like Ireland and in a place like the North as well. But I was wondering if you were given a blank check and six months free time to 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 dig into any story or theme 
um, that w- from which stories would emerge that you could report on. What do you think that would be? Um, well, I am uh, just starting into a new book, which is about borders. And um, actually, you recommended a, a book to me, which I found uh, really useful, which was by a, a Mexican feminist. Um, oh, Gloria Andalucía, yeah. La Frontera, yeah. Yeah. So I had initially intended it to be a book about the Irish border, and then um, I kind of discovered that almost everybody else who was a writer seemed to be writing a book about the Irish border, and I thought, well, there's going to that's there's going to be too many books about the Irish border. So I'm writing a bit about the Irish border, but also just more about other borders that exist. You know, borders. Um, borders between genders, borders between people who are allowed to speak and people who are not allowed to speak, borders between life and death, borders, the borders of Europe, you know, Europe, Europe worked well for Ireland in the negotiations over Brexit in the sense that it understood the need for a soft border in Ireland, but Europe has been absolutely appalling in many ways in terms of, of um, people having to flee from wars elsewhere in the world who need refuge. So it's, um, that's, that's what I really want. I'm very, very keen to get stuck back into that book. I've done a certain amount of work on it, but I want to, I want to really get settled into that now. I think that borders, you know, like I mentioned earlier, Stacey Gregg, um, <clears throat> Stacey Gregg is a really, really fantastic young playwright, and she talked about wanting to fuck with the fourth wall, you know, like she's not interested in doing plays that are kind of comfortable and tell middle class theatre go- goers what they think they already know. She's interested in really sort of, you know, using the otherness of theatre to, to disrupt what people know about life you know so I'm very interested in that 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 kind of just border between what people think they know and what they know and also I think you know the north is such a haunted place that I'm quite interested in that I'm very interested in that way in which um, the past and people who have been killed continue to be very very actively involved in what's happening there now you know the the what Lyra McKee really had had as her subject, that kind of um, the shadow of grief that still hangs over Northern Ireland because issues to do with people who were killed have not been dealt with and, and people feel that justice hasn't been done and people feel that truth hasn't been delivered and they feel a responsibility to those that they loved who were killed to deliver those things. So those kind of borders also interest me. And the way that politics is just so informed by history and and by myth as well, as well as by what's perceived to be happening in the present day. So my book about borders is where I would want to put any kind of funds that I can manage to get my way. Well, I cannot wait for that. <laughs> I cannot wait. Susan McKay, an absolute pleasure as usual. Thank you so much for taking the time out at a very uh, deadline heavy time uh, with the <laughs> DUP crack going on. Really, really appreciate it. And we'll chat soon. Thanks very much, Anna.